0: We're in Matthew chapter 17. I was listening to a, a well known preacher who was coming to verses 9 through 13, which is going to be our text for this morning, and he said, I. I came to, he just preached the transfiguration and he came to this passage as I, on Monday morning after preaching Sunday, he said, I stared at the passage and I thought, what am I going to say about this? Sometimes preachers do that, you know, you, but especially when you're going, um, verse by verse through a, a book, um, you come to passages and you are, Vexed or perhaps taxed in your own thoughts and understanding and you seek the Lord for help. And so I trust God will give us help this morning and we'll be able to glean from this portion of scripture something that would be alive, come alive to us and be helpful for us in our view of Christ, in our view of God. Verses 9 through 13 are not standalone verses. They follow What we preached last week, and so I'm going to begin our reading in verse 1 again, chapter 17, verse 1. I'll read down through verse 13. Of course, this is following what Jesus has said. Of course, you know one thing follows another. Sometimes it's easier to see that in the record of Scripture. One thing following another. It's not always that clear. This is quite clear. He has just said, "Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. And then six days later. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, His brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. I find it interesting the way Matthew records that. Peter answered and said as if Jesus asked him something. You know. But of course we know from the other records that Peter was kind of nervous. He just he, he didn't know what to say. In fact, that's what one of the records said. He didn't know what he was saying. He was just he was just saying, he was just talking, he had to say something. Maybe I would have too. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved son. In whom I am well pleased, hear him. And of course, from what we just heard in the last hour, he has always been well pleased with his son. But here it's announced. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, "Arise and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now, as they came down from the mountain, this was the, the next day. Jesus commanded them, saying, tell the vision. And a vision here is not something, some apparition. This is something that they actually saw. It's a proper translation, the word vision. But you can see it in Acts 7 and verse 31. It's translated actually seen. And so that's the idea. Something was seen. It's called a vision. Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And his disciples, these three that were with him, asked him, saying, Why then do the describe, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Some days later, we don't know exactly how long, Jesus returns to this theme that he's actually emphasizing here in, in our text in verses 22 and 23. Now, while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. I would imagine that Peter, James, and John were quite excited as they came down off of that mountaintop experience, I guess we can call it. I'm sure they must have been excited at least to tell the other apostles what they had experienced and probably to tell more than just the apostles what they had just experienced. They had just seen a visible manifestation That Peter would later call the majesty of Jesus in 2 Peter chapter 1. He who was born in the likeness of men. And lived with the common appearance of a man. There was no special glory or visible splendor that was seen in the man Jesus on an ordinary day to day basis. But on this occasion, his face shone or shined like the sun, and his clothes lit up from the intrinsic glory that exuded from him on that occasion something there was like a, a a veil lifted we might say there 's various ways of expressing it in fact, I think it was something that the disciples. Even once they did talk about it, had difficulty expressing it. And they used language like glory and majesty. It was something that definitely impacted them, affected them. They were seeing something unusual. A sort of exclamation point about who this was that they were traveling with. And of course, they had seen Moses and Elijah. The two giants of Jewish history speaking with Jesus and they were speaking with Jesus about his departure, his exodus or that which was going to happen in Jerusalem. And I don't know what they talked about about that, but it was a conversation and no doubt they probably heard something of what was going on. But they they saw these two giants of the faith of redemptive history. They're on the mountain with Jesus. And if that weren't enough, the voice of God the Father coming forth as a cloud consumed the mountain and surrounded them. And of course, they were overwhelmed as His voice came thundering forth. This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. Their fear-filled reaction, which I suppose would have been my reaction and yours as well, which was a common reaction when such an appearance came of God to various individuals. And yet, that reaction was met by the tender touch of love and compassion and words of calming peace as Jesus said, Arise! Arise! Do not be afraid. What a night. Truly, an experience that must be shared, but as glorious as that experience was, it was temporary. Not temporary in the sense that it, that, that it would not happen again, but temporary in the sense that it would not continue, at least until after the resurrection. After the ascension and ultimately at the end of the age. Oh, it was real. It was a foretaste. But the Son of Man had to come down from this mountain. And he had to come down from this mountain to face the humiliation of suffering on another hill before returning to the glory that he had with his Father before creation. Of course, he prayed that way in John 17. And through suffering, he would not only return himself to glory, he would bring many sons with him to glory. Excuse me, Hebrews chapter two, you can read about it there. These three disciples had no doubt that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God. They confessed it and Jesus commended them for that confession. They they had a sense of who he was. They knew at least to some degree enough to be able to confess that with conviction. This is who you are. We we know who you are. At least, you know, when I say they knew who he was, it's like it's like me saying, I know who God is. I know who God is to the degree that I know who he is. But as we heard in the last hour and surely we know this, our understanding continues to grow, doesn't it? They didn't understand the path that He must take. A path that seemed contradictory to their concept of Messiah. And Jesus knew that they wouldn't get it until after the resurrection. He knew where they were in their understanding. And He knew as He came off the, off the mountain that he, that he needed to, needed to, in a sense, distract them from what they just saw because there was something else that needed Needed to take up their retention and really his as well. And therefore he tells them to say nothing about what they've seen until the son of man is risen from the dead. Now Mark's gospel account tells us that it was their discussion. It was as they discussed this idea of what he meant by rising from the dead. What did, what? What, you know, the three men were just, what does he mean by rising from the dead? What's he talking about? And it was it was in that discussion among them that Jesus then says what he says. And they asked the question that they asked. This is what led to their confusion and the question in verse 10. And then that was followed by the clarification of Jesus and the confirmation of Jesus of his own suffering in verses 11 and 12. And this is, as we will see, what really is the point that Jesus is pressing I believe, as he's coming down from the mountain and as he's engaging with the disciples here on this occasion. So first, let's look at the disciples' perplexity or their confusion over the fulfillment of prophecy in verses 9 and 10. The question is, why then do, do, do the scribes say that Elijah must come First. Why then? Based on what they have just seen. They have just seen Elijah. And of course they saw Moses too. But they have just seen Elijah. And they know something of the understanding, at least from the scribes' perspective, of what that meant when Elijah would come. And so this is stirring in their minds. And then they have just heard what Jesus said, which is in verse 9, Tell the vision to no one. And if Jesus had stopped there, I don't know that they would have been as confused. But he says, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. What does he mean by this? Elijah has appeared and then went away. In their minds, this was an indicator that the kingdom was to be restored to Israel. In fact, even after his resurrection, remember, they said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Remember that in Acts chapter one. So that was that was pressing upon their understanding. But Jesus is now talking about his death. Now, these men were committed followers of Jesus Christ. They understood that he was the Christ, the son of the living God. They believed that he is the Messiah, but they do not yet understand how his death and resurrection fits. What does that have to do with the king? What does that have to do with the Messiah? Like most Jews, they were anticipating a political and national resurgence under the Messiah. We've made this point before. I'm not going to elaborate on that. And like most Jews, they believed in a resurrection. I say most Jews because, you know, the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. So there was some conflict in the Jewish Culture, but, but most Jews did believe in a resurrection. In fact, you remember in, in John chapter 11 when Jesus was interacting with Martha, Jesus said to her, your, concerning Lazarus, your brother will rise again. You remember, you remember what Martha said. I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So there was confidence in a resurrection at the last day. In their minds, there would be a resurrection and judgment. But it was at that point that Jesus said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me though he were dead, yet shall he, he live. But up to that point, and still in their minds, they're not understanding what this talk of death in in regards to him really meant. They don't understand how his death and his resurrection fits into the fulfillment of the glory that was just revealed in the transfiguration. Why can't we just get on with it? Why can't this glory that we just it, we have just I mean let's build three tabernacles right why can't we just get on with this glory let's get on with the with the messianic fulfillment of the messianic promise for the nation of Israel and 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 we three and the others you know we'll we'll sit on I mean we we're, we're going to reign with you we're going to have a special place in this kingdom and they expected the unfolding of that Now, remember, there's a first and a second coming of Christ and the prophets speak. of. Let's go back to Malachi chapter three or chapter four. The prophets speak of this and I'm not going to belabor this point, but there is a first and a second coming of Christ and the prophets talked of that. But oftentimes it's confusing as to which coming the prophets are talking about, the first or the second And sometimes a particular prophet in his prophecy is actually speaking of both within the same prophecy. And I think that's what we have with Malachi, especially Malachi chapter three and four, or maybe even especially uh, chapter four, but three and four. And so the scribes said, and this was the teaching that the apostles, the disciples had grew up under and were influenced by. The scribes taught that Elijah must come first, and then the Messiah. And they got they get this from Malachi chapter four verses five and six. And by the way, there's a lot of what we call would call extraneous or extra um, writing by Jewish teachers and scholars who talk about Elijah and talk about him in such a way that he's almost as important, or maybe even more so, than the Messiah himself. So in Malachi four, beginning in verse four, remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel with the statutes and judgments. And behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet. Stop there. Who have they just seen? Not just Elijah. They've seen Moses. And so here the Old Testament concludes with this reference to what is coming. And then we come to the New Testament and it opens up with the really picking up where the Old Testament leaves off right here and, and, and here in the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah appear. And so that's significant in the minds of the disciples. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, the great and dreadful day of the Lord in the mind of the Jew had more to do with God's judgment on the nations, not God's judgment upon Israel. But I believe if we understand this passage correctly and the prophecy of Malachi, it is first... Referring to a judgment that would come upon the nation, unbelieving nation of Israel. And then, by extension, to the end, when righteous judgment would come upon all of the earth. So as you're reading Malachi and a number of the judgment prophecies of the Old Testament, especially as it talks about the day of the Lord, I think that's the way you should read them. And we're going to talk more about this when we get to Matthew chapter 24. Because there is a double fulfillment in prophecy. I hope I'm not confusing you here. But he says, Behold, I I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth or the land. That word translated earth there is also properly translated land. In other words, the, the, the view here, at least initially in the first coming, is not so much the earth broadly, but the land, the land of of Judea, the Jewish land, which had the temple, which, as you know, in 70 A.D. was destroyed and, and the nation of Israel was judged harshly. Darkness came over them. There's a curse that came upon them. But they taught that the, the scribes taught that Elijah the Tishbite would literally return with unusual power to prepare the nation for the messianic reign. Elijah was as critical then in their eschatology as Messiah. You remember just in, back in chapter 16 of Matthew, verse 14, when Jesus said, who do men say that I am? One of the persons that they said was, some say, Elijah. And in fact, in John chapter one and verses twenty one through twenty five, where there were Jewish leaders who came to John and asked him, are you the Christ? He said, no. Well, are you Listen to this. Are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet Moses? He said, no. They said to him, who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And by the way, Malachi said that too in Malachi 3 and verse 1. Now those who were sent were from the Pharisees and they asked him saying, Why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor nor the prophet? So in their minds, Messiah, when Messiah comes and Elijah would precede the coming of Messiah, that there would be a, a a restoration of Israel to national political prominence in the world. And so, so they didn't perceive that Malachi's prophecy of judgment was directed first to unbelieving Israel. And so the disciples, influenced by the teaching of the scribes, are perplexed. That's why they asked the question. You notice the question is why then? Do the the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Why then? This idea of him dying perplexed them. A suffering Messiah did not fit their understanding of a promised, glorious Jewish kingdom. Thus the question, why? Why? Now let me just pause here and insert this idea. Do you ever, do you ever have confusion as you read the scripture? Especially prophetic scripture. You know, I kind of, I almost find it helpful when I'm reading the scriptures and somebody says, what does that mean? And it's kind of like what we're seeing here with the disciples. Why? And what I would suggest to you is this. Don't lose heart if you don't understand something what I would say to you is ask. And I would say, ask Jesus. He's a patient and perfect teacher. He really is. He's patient with the disciples here. And all along the way, He's patient. He's going to repeat the same things over and over again to them until they finally get it. As we'll see, they understand here finally. This point, though they didn't understand everything they needed to understand. Brothers and sisters, we have his full revelation and we have the best teacher. Michael read a passage, I think it was chapter 16 or chapter 14 in John, how that the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, I'll send a teacher, I'll give you a teacher and we have the Holy Spirit. And I would say to you that you and I, as we read Scripture, even with our perplexing questions, the why, the what does this mean kind of questions, I believe that if we will ask, and if our hearts are sincere, we want to know. And we're asking in humility. We're actually wanting to learn. We will understand progressively. He will teach us. He will teach us. This kind of fits the um Stuart Wednesday night referred to Philippians chapter three, verse fifteen, therefore, let us as many as are mature, have this mind, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal this to you. So I would say to you, be patient. Do you understand what I mean by that? I mean, no matter what you're hearing, who you're if someone is unpacking scripture to you. And you're hearing something maybe for the first time, or you're hearing something that just doesn't quite line up with the way you have thought, like the disciples here. Don't immediately dismiss it. Be patient. Consider it. And understand what you can understand. And receive what you can understand, which is what the disciples end up doing here. Until there's fuller understanding that's given. So so that's just a, a side note here from the experience of the disciples with Jesus, but I would encourage you that he's a faithful teacher by the spirit of the Holy Spirit through the word. And so Jesus in verses 11 and 12 clarifies or seeks to clarify the confusion. And he does to a point here. Confusion regarding the prophecy of Elijah as he continues to reveal his path to glory. And so Jesus confirms and clarifies in verses 11 and 12. He says in verse 11, indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. Now, I'm not going to get into the details of it, but if you could see the Greek structure of this of verse 11 and 12, what you would see is an, a, 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 an emphasis upon a contrast and you see it in the English translation like this, the word indeed and the word, and the word but in verse 12. So indeed, or for sure, there's something that's true about what the scribes say. Indeed, but there's a contrast. This is true, but it's not the whole truth. There's something more. There's clarification that is needed. And so he first confirms that the scribes were not totally wrong. Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. Why would Jesus say, indeed, the scribes are right. Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. Why would he say that? Because that's what Malachi says, right? That's what Malachi said in Malachi 4 and verse verses 5 and 6. And so Jesus says... That is true. He is coming and He will restore all things. But Jesus is not saying there is a future coming of Elijah in the flesh before His second coming. He is focusing here upon the first coming. Now, there is a, I think, a veiled sort of reference to the second coming. And we'll see that more in Matthew chapter 24. But here, he is specifically zeroing in on his first coming. And so the language that he's using, he's speaking from Malachi's perspective when he says, indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. And from Elijah's perspective, that's exactly What was going to happen? And that's exactly what did happen as Jesus unpacks what is meant by that. This prophecy is true. He would restore. He says he says he will restore all things. Now, this will restore all things is not an all inclusive statement. He's not saying it's not as if Elijah is the Messiah. And Elijah is going to restore all things to some sort of perfect, righteous kingdom. In fact, Elijah is preparatory to the king and the inauguration of his kingdom that will be consummated at the end of the world. And all things ultimately, eventually will be restored. But it begins here. It begins in the life of, of of Jesus. It begins in the life of Elijah pointing to the Messiah who would be the one who would carry out the fulfillment ultimately of the prophecy. And so in verse 12, Jesus clarifies who Elijah is. He says, but I say to you. Have you heard that before? You have heard it said, but I say unto you. You know, that was a common way in which Jesus talked. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. So Jesus is clarifying who Elijah is, but has come already. And so he is referring, as we know, to the ministry of John the Baptist. And the ministry of John the Baptist was comparable to Elijah. Let's flip over to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. As John the Baptist was, the prophecy of his birth was being given to Zacharias. This is what was said to Zacharias in verse 15. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. By the way, I might just comment on this. The Holy Spirit is so critical. He's so critical to everything. He's so critical to our salvation, as you heard in the last hour. He's critical. He's a critical part of the outworking of the triune God's purpose in this world. He was critical in relationship to John the Baptist. He was critical in relationship to the man Christ Jesus. He was critical. He was critical to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's critical to the application of everything that God in His, in His eternal counsel has purposed now and forever. The Holy Spirit is critical. You see? And he will turn many, he, referring to John the Baptist, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. To do what? To turn the hearts. To restore. Back in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 6, and he will turn the hearts. That word turn could also be translated restore. In fact, the Greek word that's used back in our text in Matthew uh, in Matthew 17 that is translated restore, he shall restore all things, that Greek word is used in the Greek translation of Malachi 4 in verse 6. He will turn, he will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the earth or the land with a curse. And so the message. And so he did. He he turned the hearts of the children and the disobedient to the the hearts of the fathers, to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And that was the ministry of John the Baptist. His ministry was confrontational. We've talked about the ministry of John the Baptist before. I'm not going to spend time. Discussing that here. But you know, he was much like Elijah, wasn't he? He confronted, Elijah confronted the prophets of Baal. And he suffered the resistance from Ahab and Jezebel. Just like John suffered resistance from Herod and Herodias. And in fact, and, in, and John the Baptist's ministry was all about preparing the way for Messiah as he had a very similar type of ministry and message confronting the ungodliness and the unbelief in Israel, just like Elijah. And you can read about that in Matthew chapter 3 and verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying, repent, turn, Be restored, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. I'm not going to continue reading the the first 12 verses of Matthew chapter 3, but if you read that, you'll see he confronted in very harsh terms his generation, especially the religious leaders in his generation, and his ministry was widespread. All of Judea and Jerusalem, I mean, they, they came to him, they flocked to him. He had a wide influence on the land as he, as he pointed that generation to Jesus. He pointed to the Messiah. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not, not me, I, I'm not the Messiah. Jesus, he must increase. I must decrease. So who was Elijah? According to Jesus, it was John the Baptist. So if I asked you the question, if you were to ask the disciples, was John the Baptist Elijah? What would have been their answer? Now some today say, no, no, he's not. Um, uh, Elijah's got to appear, according to Revelation chapter 11. He's one of the two witnesses. He's got to appear in person later on at the end of the age, before the, you know, during the Armageddon, the tribulation period, et cetera, et cetera. All the eschatological views that are put forward. But if you were to have asked the disciples here, who is is John the Baptist Elijah? What would have been their answer? In one sense, they may have said no, because John the Baptist himself said, no, I'm not. Right? He said, I'm not Elijah. Because I'm not Elijah reincarnated, or I'm not Elijah in the flesh. He wasn't a visible manifestation of Elijah. But in a fulfillment sense, yes, he was Elijah. Was Jesus Moses? Well, in on one sense, you have to you have to know he's certainly greater than better than any any of the those who prefigured him. But the scriptures say that he's a prophet. Moses says a prophet will be raised up who is like me. Right. Was he David? Was Jesus David? And the Bible says David was going to be raised to sit upon the throne. But he, no, David wasn't literally raised in the body, in the flesh. Jesus is that David. And brethren, that's the same kind of thought here. John the Baptist was Elijah. What difference does it make? I mean, are we, are we just batting around something that really doesn't matter? What difference does it make if John the Baptist is Elijah? And it seems to me that it makes a pretty significant difference. Because if John the Baptist is not Elijah, then Malachi's prophecy is yet unfulfilled. And that tells me that we're still waiting upon the Messiah. And that's exactly what the Jewish, at least Orthodox Jews, that's where they stand today. That because John the Baptist is the fulfillment of the prophecy, then Malachi's prophecy is fulfilled In the first coming of Jesus and the Messiah is, in fact, identified in that fulfillment, you see. But you know, the problem then and now for many is simply not hearing Jesus. I think it's significant that this follows what the disciples have just experienced on the Mount of Transfiguration in this sense, that what did the Father, what did God say to them? This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. Hear, Moses and Elijah, skeedaddle. Hear Him. I know what the scribes have said to you. I know what the, the scribes have emphasized. But I am greater than the scribes. I am the one that you need to be listening to. And that's not just on my testimony. That's the testimony of my Father. I speak what He speaks. I am Him in the flesh. As God, you see, I'm one with Him. I'm in union with Him, right? And so hear Him. And so in this case, Jesus is essentially saying, listen to me. Now he's already said at an earlier place that Elijah, that John the Baptist was Elijah. Do you remember that back in chapter eleven and verses thirty, excuse me, fourteen and fifteen? He says, "For all the prophets, verse thirteen, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come." Now some have said that because they were not willing to receive it. That it wasn't fulfilled. And so it's waiting to be fulfilled at the end of this age. And so Elijah is actually literally physically going to come, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Because that's the teaching of some. By the way, that's the teaching of some that some of you and I listen to. And I respect them in many ways. But I don't conclude it. That's not my conclusion. That's not what I see. He said, if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear. Let him hear. Let him hear me. I'm speaking. And now, what, weeks later, finally, this voice from heaven says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. And here Jesus is giving the correct interpretation of this prophetic word of Malachi. And they are finally hearing Him. The disciples Understand, it says in verse 13, then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. Well, is that the end of the story? Is that all that matters? Is it good that they came to that conclusion that that. Uh, wow, now they understand something about a prophecy. Now they understand that John the Baptist is Elijah. Good, they can They can write their prophetic journal, in their prophetic journals, and I guess do a series of lessons on that, and, and they've got this point of prophecy right. John the Baptist is Elijah. But that's not the ultimate point. There's still a problem, you see. They don't yet have understanding that the Messiah must suffer. They haven't understood Isaiah's prophecy of the suffering servant and other prophetic expressions. They haven't yet understood Moses and Elijah or the law and the prophets who appeared on the mountain talking to Jesus about what he was going to face in Jerusalem. They don't understand that. They saw a manifestation of glory. Which was a true manifestation of glory. But it was a glory minus suffering. And so the resurrection. Which was the culmination. And really the death. When he says "Um, until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. He's speaking of the, the death and the resurrection. That's the culmination of redemptive history. And that would be the means. To the restoration of all things and to the eternal glory that was just peered into there on the mountain. But that is what Jesus' aim was in coming into this world. And so Jesus confirms, I see in verses 11 and 12, especially verse 12. I believe Jesus is confirming His path to glory as Messiah. And He's repeating this message. He began back in chapter 16 when he, when, he, when, he, when he told them in verse 21 that, you know, I've got to go to Jerusalem. I've got to suffer many things. I've got to be killed. I've got to, I'm going to be raised the third day. And on the Mount of Transfiguration, they heard this discussion about what was happening in Jerusalem. And then, you know, a few days later, I read verses 22 and 23, he's going to get even more pointed. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men by one of their own. And we know that they didn't know that. And they will kill him the third day he'll rise again. And then you skip over to chapter 20. I'm not going to show, but, you know, incrementally, Jesus is unpacking with greater Pointedness and clarity. And then in chapter 20, I believe it is. I'm not remembering exactly. 20 and then I think it is in chapter 26. That he gets even more specific when he actually unfolds why it is that he's dying. Why it is. It has to do with sin. The remission of sin. Which is in the way of a sharing in the glory of the transfiguration in an eternal way. The glory of the transfiguration cannot be separated from the suffering of death and resurrection. Only then will Jesus, as Romans chapter 1 and verse 4 says, be declared emphatically the Son of God. With power, you remember in chapter 6 of Romans a couple of weeks ago, preached on that where he was raised by the glory of the Father, you remember. But that required his death. And so, Jesus, as he speaks to his disciples in verse 12, compares himself with his forerunner. He says, I say unto you that Elijah has come already and they did not know him but did to Him whatever they wished. Whatever they willed, whatever they did not, whatever they wanted to. Likewise, the Son of Man. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Just as John was unknown to be the fulfillment of prophecy, they didn't see the Baptist. To be Elijah, the forerunner. They didn't see that. And so they mistreated him and they killed him. They silenced him, but they couldn't stop the message. They couldn't prevent what his message was. And so the Son of Man was unknown as Messiah. And he likewise suffered. And you know, you remember what Paul said? Had they known? Had they known him? They would not have crucified the Lord of glory. There's a sense in which their ignorance was part of the unfolding of redemptive history, you see. But it says that they did whatever they wished. Don't get the wrong impression in what I just said. You see, it's true. Jesus is well aware of what he will suffer. Because it was according to the determinant counsel and foreknowledge Of God, right? It had to happen. It could happen no other way than the way it happened. And yet, he must humble himself to that suffering and death. And by the hands of cruel and wicked men suffer. And they didn't do what they did in some sort of robotic way. They weren't just actors in a rigged play. You said, well, I don't understand that. Somebody was asking me about predestination the other day. I don't understand that. Well, there's a lot of things I don't understand either. But it's revealed. The mystery. It is revealed. And what I will say to you is that those hands which were laid upon John the Baptist and those hands... That were laid upon Jesus were guilty and they're fully accountable for everything that they did. They did it willingly. Are y'all going to be offended if I say they did it of their own free will? In other words, they weren't puppets. They were acting volitionally. Can I say it that way? They were engaged. They did whatever they wished. Jesus Jesus says this. By the way, he's, he's a pretty good theologian. And He says, they did whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is about to suffer at their hands. And yet He submitted to it. He submitted to it. He humbled Himself. But brethren, I say... And I say it because the scripture says it likewise. Likewise the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. So I, I say that there there's a comparison. There is a there is a relationship between the suffering of Jesus' forerunner and his own suffering. Just like there's a comparison between the suffering of all the prophets that preceded and Jesus' own suffering. Just like there is a comparison in some ways to our every suffering of the disciples and everyone who has followed Jesus ever since and has suffered as a follower of Jesus Christ. In other words, the scriptures speak of it as a fellowshipping in the sufferings of Christ and all that that means it at least in part means what we suffer by our identity with Him in this world at the hands of wicked and cruel people who despise the one that we are united with and so despise us. So there is that, there is that comparison. But oh, don't misunderstand. His suffering was utterly unique. Utterly unique. No suffering ultimately compares to his. You see, he is no mere religious man suffering for a religious cause. We are not lining up behind Jesus and saying, well, you know, he was a a fine uh, example of a martyr, so we're going to line up behind him so that we can be martyred too. That's not what's going on here. There's something unique. He is not just a man, though He is a man. But He's God, united with humanity. You heard that in the last hour. The Messiah who came to suffer under the curse of sin. Lest the curse come upon you. Lest the curse come upon me. Lest the curse come upon the land. And lest all of the land, all of the earth, you know, even in that first generation, there were many Jews who were converted, weren't they? Many Jews were restored. Many Jews were saved. Paul says, I'm one of them. Remember that? You know, in Romans chapter 11, right, he said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm a Jew. And there were others? And so the Messiah came to suffer under the curse of sin, to conquer sin, and to conquer death, and, and raised from the dead to do what? To restore. All things. Now, Peter and John ultimately understood that message. Let's go over to Acts chapter 3, and we're just about done. Acts chapter 3. And so here Peter is delivering his second message. His first message was on Pentecost. And he spoke of the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ to the Jews. And their part in His crucifixion. Their culpable part in His crucifixion. Here he's, he's preaching again in a Jewish context. But it's words that apply to all who will be of the seed of Abraham, Jew and Gentile. Beginning in verse 17. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, turn, turn, therefore, and be converted, be restored, that your sins may be blotted out. So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that He may send Jesus Christ. And I get the sense here that, that Peter is now looking even beyond, beyond to, to, the, to that final day. That He may send Jesus Christ who was preached to you before whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration. That's the word. That's back in our text. Is translated restore all things. Here it is. Restoration of all things. This is the ultimate goal. Which God has spoken by the mouth of all his prophets. Since the world began. In other words God is not just going to leave this world. To the overcoming power of sin and destruction and curse. He's going to. Rid this earth, rid this world of that curse. And all who repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the deliverer, will join in that grand restoration and that glory that is coming in that forever relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. For Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. Now, I know this isn't talking about Elijah here, but Moses and Elijah play a part. That is the fulfillment of Moses and Elijah play a part in redemptive history. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet, who is that prophet? Who is that? Who? Christ. Thank you, you're following this. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the, what did the father say? Hear him. You gotta, you gotta hear Jesus. You gotta hear him. Listen, there's a lot of things you may not understand, a lot of things that are confusing. There's a lot of things prophetically that are confusing. Blow past the confusion. Listen to Jesus. Listen to Him. And He didn't speak. He spoke in some very clear and precise words, didn't He? One of the things He said is, Come unto Me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll, I'll give you rest. Right? But if you don't listen to Him, and you say, no, I'll, I'll go my own way. I'll do my own thing. I don't need Jesus. In fact, I don't like that, that that bloody cross stuff. I don't like that. I, You know, if you can give me glory without that, I'll take that. But what Jesus is saying to His disciples and He's saying to us, you can't have that without the cross. That's why we preach Christ crucified. And that's why we speak the words of Christ. So he says, yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, have also foretold these days, you are the sons of the prophets. He's speaking you to the Jews, to the Jew first, also to the Gentile. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham and in your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up his servant, Jesus sent him to bless you. In turning away every one of you from your iniquities. And then John, seeing the end, seeing the restoration of all things. The Apostle John says in Revelation 21 verses 3 through 5. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And He will dwell with them and they shall be His people. God Himself will be with them and be their God. Are you hearing the subject of union there? And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, the restoration of all things. Nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And then he said this. I love this. He said, write. Write this. For these words are true and faithful. He said, write. Write that. These words are true and faithful. He has spoken. He has spoken. And that's what matters. What Jesus has said, and because of who he is and because of what he has done, we live now, we who are believers, we who have turned, we who have turned from our wicked ways in that direction of rebellion against him, we have turned to him. We live now in fellowship with him in his suffering, with the power of his resurrection The power of His resurrection life upholding us. The thought occurred to me just yesterday as I look back over my life. Why am I still where I am? Why am I still in a relationship God, why? Why am I still believing? Why? It's because I'm being upheld by the resurrection power, the resurrection life of Jesus Christ, and it stirs within me eternal hope of glory. And it's not eternal hope of glory that I have this, you know, I have some address on the street of gold that I can, you know, do my own thing. No, I'll be joined with Him, and all that that means forever, perfection. And brothers and sisters, may I just close with a just just one application that came to my mind and I think has come to others as well. The Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that filled John the Baptist, the same Holy Spirit came upon Jesus, filled him to the to fullness. That same Holy Spirit Is in you and me. And do you know what Jesus said? You know. But he said, Well, I'm gonna go away. And now I'm skipping to Acts chapter one, where he says, He says, You stay here, and when the Holy Spirit comes, power, there will be a power that will come upon you, and you will be witnesses, not to yourselves. You'll be witnesses unto me. Just like John was a witness to Jesus. You and I. And the Holy Spirit. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. You see, we're part of that forerunning forerunner mission in our generation. To take the message of Jesus... To lift up the person of Jesus. How do we do that? Yes, we do it through the proclamation of the Gospel. But we also do that as the world sees the unity of the brethren, the love of the brethren. Christ is evident. And Jesus prayed, the world will know. The world will know that this is real. That I am real. God is real. May the Lord help us to be that kind of forerunner. Even if it means suffering. Even if it means losing our lives. We will share in His eternal glory. Father, I thank You.